Hello everyone, welcome to the second season of Immunology and Beyond. We are back after taking a quick break during the holiday season of 2020, and we're very excited to take off with our second season, and we have a very exciting guest. But before we introduce him, we just wanted to let you know that we are very thankful for everyone that tuned in last season to our bi-weekly episodes, and we're hoping to continue the same schedule for this new season where we're going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly. And we're hoping that this season we're for sure going to release a mini-sode where myself, Anna, and Dom are going to sit down together and just discuss a little bit about ourselves and experiences that we had during research. We're hoping to do a topic that's related to our first exposure to research conferences and how that went. But to not cut it too long, I'm going to quickly jump into introducing Dr. John Paul Oliveria, who very kindly accepted our request to be our first guest of our second season. And in fact, it is our first international guest that we interview. Although he does have roots at McMaster University, he's currently at Stanford University. And for his episode, we actually ended up breaking it up into two-parters. So the one you're listening to right now is part one of Dr. Oliveria's interview. And you'll see that we're going to call him and refer to him as JP. But the reason we broke it up into two parts is because we sat down with him and talked about his PhD and now his current postdoc experience. We talked about it to a very extensive detail, both in his research. So if you're very interested in learning and getting a little bit of an insight into the pathology behind allergies and how IgEs and plasma cells are related, well, then JP is going to give us a very good and extensive information related to that. And then to carry on with that, he does give a lot of insight in terms of things that he believes are important that don't pertain to research, but are very important to graduate students and just individuals in general. And then for a second part, which we're going to be releasing a week from when this episode is released, we're going to be discussing now his current position and his postdoc that he's doing at Stanford University. Once again, diving really into the research, and that's why this episode are going to be a little longer than usual is because we really get into the itty gritty science and we found that it was very exciting and it was couldn't just cut it down we believe that this 50 minutes are going to be super insightful and we hope that you enjoy it so without further ado we would like to introduce dr john paul oliveria Thank you, JP, for being with us here today. I just want to say that you're our first international guest, even though that you do have roots at McMaster University. You're our first guest from across the border in the United States. So we're very happy to have you. I'm very happy to be here, too. To start off the podcast, what we like to do is kind of give our listeners a little bit more knowledge about your background. So we thought it'd be good to kind of start with your education trajectory, kind of where you started leading to where you are right now. Perfect. Yeah. So but first, I just wanted to say, like, thank you again for inviting me to be a guest on your podcast. This is my first time talking about science in this format. So I'm excited to learn with you if things kind of go a little bit bumpy. But yeah, so this is always a really nice question for me to reflect on because I'm actually first gen in university, uh, meaning my mom and dad didn't pursue any college or university when we were, they were back home in the Philippines. But thankfully, me and my brother were actually given the opportunity to pursue higher education there in Canada. It's actually a random coincidence that I actually ended up at McMaster University for my BSc. I actually only applied to McMaster for the Bachelor of Health Sciences program, but I didn't end up getting in. I was rejected. But Mac offered me an alternate offer into their Bachelor of Science program. And since I really like the campus and the sense of community, I actually decided to just go there and attend Mac for my BSc. So I started at Mac back in 2007 as a general science student. 
And in 2008, before second year, that's where we had to choose our specific program stream that we wanted to pursue. A lot of my friends chose general biology or life sciences, but I ended up choosing the genetic specialization stream because I thought it was cool to do a specialization. Little did I know that might have been not good because grades were a little bit harder to get in the genetics program. But yeah, so I actually uh, had to do a little bit more of the required genetics courses um, in this program uh, to, in order to complete my bachelor's degree. That's why I graduated with a specialization in genetics. In my second year of, under, of undergrad too, I wanted to start exploring different research projects. And finally, I decided to do research as in my career path too. Um, so I actually finished my undergrad in 2011 and decided to stay at McMaster to start a master's degree program in medical sciences under the supervision of Dr. Gail Gavro. Uh, during my first year of my master's, I was really enjoying working on my project. So I then transferred into the PhD program in the medical sciences uh, in 2013, and then eventually completed all of my PhD requirements by August 2017. I did a short interim postdoc there at Mac um, in the same group. While I was waiting for my paperwork and visa to go through for my postdoc position that I lined up here in the US. And I officially started my postdoc here at Stanford University in Dr. Sean Bendel's group, January 2018. And just a fun fact, though, I was actually in Gail's lab since I was in my third year of undergrad. So I was in her lab for about eight years by the time I left for my postdoc in the U.S. Thank you so much for sharing that story. To kind of go in, into a little more detail, I was wondering if you can tell us what drew you to research into allergy and asthma, specifically in immunology. Because I know you mentioned that you went into specialization in genetics, so that seemed to be kind of something that interested you, but then you specialize within immunology and specifically in allergy and asthma. Yes. So it's actually interesting because different people have different motivations for why they do the different types of research that they do. So initially, my reason was because me and my family, actually me, my brother and my mom and my cousins have various allergies to environmental allergens like pollen, pet fur, dust and some foods like fish. And some of them also have asthma and always have their inhalers with them in case of emergencies. So one of my initial motivations for pursuing research specifically in allergy and immunology was to kind of like understand how allergies and asthma work so that I can help explain things to my family because they always had a lot of questions. But then as I continued more um, into doing more research, I actually started to pursue other research areas, all within the context of medicine or medical sciences, but it was more so the curiosity of how these different diseases worked, how we can treat them. And that basically became my driving force for why I wanted to stay in research, because there's so much to know and so much to learn. And I can't wait to keep on learning and growing my skill sets as a researcher. I think definitely when you're passionate about something and there's a reason behind it, it drives you more to succeed in that area. I guess like, you know, we know now what kind of researcher you are, what drives you. I think you can move on to get to know what your research is about. So if you could give us a little more information about what was your PhD thesis when you were at McMaster, and if you want to start with, if the research that you did during your PhD started in your undergrad, you can also dive into that. If not, you can just start from your PhD. Cool. Let's see if I can actually give a good explanation of what I did for my PhD, because it's actually been three years today while we're recording this podcast that I actually had my PhD convocation. So that was like three years ago. Um, one of the other reasons I'm actually nervous that I might be forgetting things too is because I actually switched focus when I started my postdoc. So for my PhD, I studied mainly B cells and allergic asthma. And for my postdoc right now, I'm actually studying the blood-brain barrier and astrocytes in Al Alzheimer's disease. So very different scientific domains. 
very different cell types and very different diseases. So I'll give a little bit of a background. So the prevalence of allergic diseases all over the world has actually been on the rise for the last several decades, and specifically in Canada, we also see this upward trend in allergic disease prevalence, and it's ultimately resulted in well over 3 million Canadians actually being affected specifically by allergic asthma. Um, so allergic asthma is triggered by the inhalation of environmental allergens. So for example, like pollens from trees and plants resulting in bronchial constriction and inflammation of the airways. And this leads to clinical symptoms such as wheezing, coughing, and what we commonly know as difficulty breathing. So think of it as feeling the inability to breathe, like breathing through a straw. And breathing through a straw is pretty difficult, even if you have the largest lung capacity of like an athlete, for example. So unfortunately, like many diseases, allergic asthma is very, very heterogeneous within the population, meaning that the triggers of asthma vary between different individuals and can be quite different, resulting in different clinical symptoms that one can actually experience from a spectrum of very mild disease to very severe disease. And it's actually the severe asthmatics that we're actually um, really worried about because these individuals actually experience asthmatic attacks that can lead to their airways being closed off and being uh, unable to breathe. And they actually have to be hospitalized and put on stronger systemic medications in order to reverse their airway inflammation. So I got interested in asthma just because it was so complex and there were so many different questions about its pathogenesis that can be still answered. Asthmatic airway inflammation is initiated by the release of inflammatory mediators such as histamines, and these are released by granulocytic cells like basophils and mast cells that are resident in the airways of these asthmatics. However, where my interest specifically lied was with a protein specifically called antibodies, um, specifically IgE or immunoglobulin E. This IgE antibody is necessary for the initiation of this allergic inflammation that happens during an asthmatic attack. Um, so plasma cells are essentially a factory um, in the body whose main purpose is to produce these antibodies. So generally, these antibodies are good and help protect us from various pathogens. But in the case of allergic asthma, the body is tricked into thinking that a seemingly harmless protein like pollen is not good, and the body just basically wants to get rid of it. And hence, you get like a hyperreactive um, response to pollen in these allergic asthmatic individuals. So during my PhD, I actually wanted to focus on these B cells producing IgE, since surprisingly there was not very much research done on B cells producing IgE, since there were other cell types that were more interesting um, to study in asthma, like the basophils and eosinophils, dendritic cells and T cells. So I feel like B cells are always the forgotten and less popular type of cells. Researchers knew that B cells were important in the allergic cascade just because of their production of IgE but they never really studied B cells themselves. Um, actually, there are actually approved anti-IgE therapies or monoclonal antibodies that bind IgE and asthmatics being used um, in patients to actually mitigate their allergic responses. And my thought was, if we knew a little bit more about the actual B cells in allergic asthma, we can improve how we actually treat these asthmatic patients in the clinic. So my PhD lab was actually unique because we were mainly a clinical trials lab, meaning we did a lot of research on humans with asthmatic disease and actually tested various therapeutics in phase one to phase three clinical trials within the lab. Although my PhD was not specifically linked to a clinical trial, I used our unique human allergen inhalation model to actually study these B cells that I, were, that I was interested in. 
um, what was great about this model we used um, for our participants was that we were able to collect a variety of different human samples to study the B cells that I was interested in. Specifically, we were able to study B cells in circulation or through the blood, the hematopoietic compartment or through bone marrow aspirates, and in the lungs, the site of allergic inflammation through sputum, um, which is a sample our participants would cough up directly from their lungs. The most pertinent findings of my study um, was that I was one of the first ones to actually study in a human asthma model characterization of the levels and kinetics of various B-cell subsets in various compartments of the body, including blood, bone marrow, and lungs of asthmatic patients. So in my first study, I looked at B-cells in the blood and sputum of allergic asthmatics compared to healthy controls. And surprisingly, very few people before have quantified these B-cells in sputum. And the study that I got the idea to do this from was from a 1996 study actually conducted at McMaster University. However, in that study, the authors only reported on total B-cell numbers in the sputum of asthmatic patients, but because one of the difficulties in studying these B-cells in the sputum, specifically IgE-producing B-cells, is the fact that they are such rare cells to be good with, and you need such good quality sputum samples to be able to detect these cells in that specific sample. But luckily, the lab specialized in acquiring really good quality sputum sample aspirates or expectorates. And I was able to not only get adequate sputum samples to study my B cells of interest, but I was able to phenotype the B cells into memory B cells and plasma cell subsets. So from this first study, I showed that Ig producing B cell levels were higher in sputum, but not in blood of allergic asthmatics compared to healthy controls. And additionally, uh, these IgE-producing B cells from the lungs were positively correlated with airway eosinophils and levels of total IgE B cells from our participants. And this suggested that local IgE-producing B cells contributed to the pathogenesis of allergic asthma. In a follow-up study to that, I used the human inhalation model to track the levels of different IgE-producing B cells in the blood, bone marrow, and sputum before and after allergen inhalation challenge in our asthmatic patients at several time points after inhalation of the allergen. So in this peripheral compartment, the blood and the bone marrow, IgE-producing B cells actually remained unchanged before and after inhalation of allergen. So then, and we, and we tracked these B cells up to four weeks after inhalation of allergen. So a, a longer time after inhalation of allergen, there were still no increases or decreases in these um, B cell targets of interest. However, we looked at sputum B cells in this allergen inhalation model before and seven hours and 24 hours in, of inhalation. We actually found that these IgE producing B cells and their total IgE levels were actually elevated in the lungs of our asthmatic patients. So this kind of like demonstrated that local production of IgE by local IgE producing B cells might be an important source to initiate this IgE mediated inflammation in asthmatic airways. You've done such an amazing job explaining the whole pathway, and there's a lot to unpack there. And I just have a couple of questions just before we we keep going. Um, yes, and thank you for doing such an amazing job explaining that. That that was terrific. So I understand that B cells have never been looked at before. In my head, when I think about it, B cells produce antibodies, and antibodies naturally target things, right? They can either target a virus. There's there's different functions that an antibody has, but in, in my mind, I can never see it leading. To to you know, constriction of the bron of the bronchioles or like restricting airflow. So I was wondering, kind of, how that idea came, or how, what is known about B cells playing a role, and that kind of led you to do this research. Cool. Yeah. So B cells produce the IgE, and this IgE is actually circulating around in in the blood, but they don't really circulate around very long because what they do is 
they actually bind to different cells like granulocytes. So mast cells and basophils have these um, receptors called high affinity IgE receptors. So the IgE that's produced by the B cells would then bind to these high affinity IgE receptors. And then as those cells either move into the airways or circulate around the blood, once they start recognizing or binding to different proteins that people are allergic to, like pollen, this allows for cross-linking of these IgE on the surface of these cells. And then these cells in and of itself are already packed with so many different inflammatory mediators like histamine or leukotrienes. So once this cross-linking occurs, then those cells actually degranulate or burst open and it release all of their inflammatory mediators. And if they're and for example, if they're doing this specifically in the lungs, you cause like an inflammatory reaction um, in the bronchioles of, of these patients, and that causes inflammation and constriction, um, which leads to the clinical symptoms of not being able to breathe. Is it possible then that the reason why allergies occur is because, you know, you kind of need the, the mast cells and the basophils to release all those different signals that lead to the inflammation, but then would that not happen if the IgEs weren't present? Or is there other pathways that wouldn't require the IgEs? Is, is the IgE kind of the missing link between allergen and then inflammation in the lung? Oh, that's a great question. And unfortunately, there's not really a straightforward answer to it. So I mentioned before that IgE is specifically important in IgE-mediated inflammation, but there's also non-IgE-mediated infl inflammation as well. So there's already a dichotomy between the necessity and, ne and non-necessity of IgE in inducing allergic responses. Um, and what happens too is you also have different patients um, with different levels of different cell types. So I, I was focused on IgE and B cells because this is kind of like the classic canonical pathway for allergic asthma. But there's also different cell types that actually um, are involved in the allergic pathogenesis of allergic asthmatics. So like, for example, in severe asthmatics, there's higher levels, for example, of neutrophils. And sometimes they might be the ones uh, being able to kind of like induce this pathogenesis of not being able to breathe in, in that subset of populations too. And for example, one of the main treatments for allergic asthma is corticosteroids. So it's an anti-inflammatory and it's kind of like a blanket therapy. And usually if you're asthmatic, one of the gold standard therapies is to have you in either inhaled corticosteroids or circulating prednisone, for example. But what happens in these kind of like severe cases of asthmatic disease, these patients become resistant to these steroids. So however much you steroids you give them, they're actually still in getting these asthmatic attacks. And that kind of like alludes to maybe there's something else out there that we still don't know about the complexity of the pathogenesis of allergic asthma. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, I assume it was it was not as simple as B cells are, are the key, but they definitely seem to play a significant role. I guess another thing that I wanted to ask was in terms of when you look at the bone marrow, there was no increase in, in this B cells. Uh, but you, you, you found B cells in the sputum. Now, for me, that was very odd. Just because I, I can't picture immune cells. When you find immune cells coming out of the lung, that, that should be a red flag for something wrong going on. And my question was, is that something that the patients who had allergic reactions naturally had within their lungs? Was that something that was present or only were B cells inf infiltrating the lung and were found in sputum only when they were exposed to an allergen? So that's a great question because um, when we look at these diseases, we often look at things in the blood. So for example, in asthma, yes, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to study the blood of our asthmatic patients and 
one of the main reasons why we do that is because of access. We can easily access blood um, from our, our, our patients and our, and our study participants. But I think one of the more important things that has been kind of like popping up more in recent literature and recent studies is that it's really important to look at the local environment of the disease that we're actually looking at. So for me, in my case, that was the lung. So there's a, a bunch of different things that we can actually get from the lung that that's approved by research and, st and stuff like that and that people actually use, which include uh, bronchial alveolar lavages, bronchial biopsies, um, and sputum. So one of the reasons why I actually um, chose to look at sputum is because it's less invasive compared to bronchial alveolar lavages and biopsies. Um, so we, we can kind of like look at sputum as a surrogate for what was actually happening in the lung environment. And, and yeah, so I think being able to study these cells directly in the disease organ is important. And to kind of like your question about, are these B cells actually there in our, in our asthmatic patients? It, it's interesting because for me, based on the data that I've generated, I think so. I think the chronicity or the chronic inflammation of allergic asthma that these patients face kind of like have allowed them to have these cells kind of like resident in their airway. So in the lungs already right now, there is resident cells that like live there and kind of like are just ready to initiate an allergic um, sort of like inflammatory response, such as um, resident mast cells and basophils. So it, it's not too odd to kind of like assume that there might be some resident B cells that are also there that might be um, releasing this IgE that actually initiates um, this inflammatory cascade. Um, and one other interesting thing, too, is that there's kind of like this dichotomy between long-lived plasma cells versus short-lived plasma cells. So the long-lived plasma cells usually kind of like hibernate and hide out in the bone marrow, and that's where the their memory sort of like, that's that's where they live. But in my study and kind of like seeing how we saw a response in these B cells kind of like really quickly after allergy, an allergen response, kind of like made me assume that there might be these short-lived B cells in the airways that once they get exposed to these antigens or allergens, they kind of like elicit their response and then die away and get replenished. Thank you. I kind of stopped you at one point uh, to dive into the research you've done. I know, you, was there other stuff that you did after the experiments you talked about during your PhD thesis? Oh yeah. So there was just like one other thing because I mainly focused on the IgE compartment, but by the time I was actually getting later into my PhD, I started getting interested in kind of like another subset of B cells. So the, the B cells that I was actually interested in afterwards are, are this kind of like regulatory type subset of B cells. So just like T cell phenotypes, there's regulatory T cells, but in the B cell world, there's also this regulatory B cell phenotype that kind of was more of like an anti-inflammatory type cell. And they, they come in various different names and phenotypes within the literature. So they're usually called B10 cells or IL-10 producing B cells or regulatory B cells or Bregs. That's just some of their names. So, but anyway, I decided to focus my PhD on kind of like understanding the balance between Bregs and IgE producing B cells instead after looking at all of the IgE B cell subsets that I did. So I did my best to kind of like phenotype these Bregs because like I said, they're still so controversial within the field. There's no actual phenotype to actually phenotype specifically these regulatory B cells. So I did my best with a 12-color flow cytometry panel to detect and phenotype these Bregs in my human inhalation model. So just like before, I evaluated the levels of these Bregs in allergic asthmatics compared to healthy controls. 
And then I looked at the kinetics and function and distribution of these BRIGs, again, in the bone marrow, in the blood, and in the sputum of allergic asthmatics following allergen inhalation challenge. And I showed that some BRIG phenotypes were actually lower in the blood of allergic asthmatics compared to healthy controls. And this kind of alluded to the possibility of a dysregulation of this regulatory cell phenotype in allergic asthmatics, which may contribute to their disease pathology. Then after allergen inhalation in our asthmatics, we actually found decreased levels of BREGs in the bone marrow and a coincident increase um, in the blood and sputum of allergic asthmatic patients. So this pattern kind of reflected that there could be potential trafficking of these BREGs from the bone marrow through the blood and into the airways after allergen exposure. And one of the last studies I did after that was I wanted to test the functionality of the, these BREGs. So I stimulated purified B cells from blood of allergic individuals with IL-4 in an in, in, in vitro culture system. I chose to stimulate allergic B cells, allergic asthmatic B cells with IL-4 because this cytokine is a type 2 cytokine known to actually isotype switch B cells to produce IgE. And interestingly, I found that IL-4 stimulation actually promoted higher levels of IL-10 producing B cells, which kind of like demonstrate that BREGs might have a role in dampening the IgE-mediated inflammation in a type 2 cytokine environment kind of like competing with this whole balance between inflammation and regulation. However, I feel like definitely more functional and mechanistic studies are needed to truly understand this BREG-mediated regulation in our allergic responses in our asthmatics. So kind of just like an overall, the findings in my PhD were kind of centered around the balance between inflammatory and anti-inflammatory B cells in our allergic asthmatic population. And as the case, as is the case with a lot of people doing their graduate research, we always uh, come out with more questions than we have answers. And this is why I love science. Uh, I had a question on B cell or on BREG phenotype. So I think you mentioned locally there was a higher incidence of BREGs and then systemically not so much. Yes. So do you think that when the B cells are trafficking systemically into that local environment of inflammation, do you think it's more of a differentiation of those B cells that are typically initially responded, responding to inflammation? Do you differentiate into possibly um, BREGs? Do you think it's environmental or do you think it's more of these BREGs have already been differentiated as BREGs and then they go to the side of inflammation? Or do you think it's more of an environmental thing that allows for that differentiation? I think I'll answer that with an either or type answer. Um, and just because with science, like we can't kind of just definitively say exactly what is kind of like happening, but I agree with both ideas. I feel like there's something happening um, in the site of, of disease. And once there's inflammation that's happening there, you get then a lot of release of different inflammatory mediators. And one of the things that gets released are actually chemokines. And you can kind of like think of this as kind of like a help signal, like, oh, like in this site of inflammation, I'm releasing these chemotactic type of molecules. And that actually draws in other cells that are circulating in the blood into that site of inflammation to actually like either help or help, but actually make it worse because then you have more inflammatory cells actually trafficking back into the site of inflammation, causing more inflammation. But this whole idea of is it environmental, and I kind of like take that as the microenvironment um, within, for example, the lung of asthmatics. Um, and I think kind of like to answer that question, uh, it's really important to study the site of inflammation of whatever disease you're looking at, because there's a lot of things that could kind of like still explored. There's a lot of scientific questions that need to be explored in these sites of inflammation that is still 
highly elusive and kind of like just being touched on now by a lot of different technologies that we have currently um, available. So like, for example, just to kind of like plug in a little bit of what I do for my postdoc right now, we study the, the brain because we want to look at exactly what's happening in the brain. And I think just contextualizing that back into asthma, um, if we study the environment that's within specifically in the lung and kind of like looking at where are these B cells located in the lung? What are they next to in terms of like what cell types they might be interacting with? Is there a niche of them? Is there some sort of lung-associated lymphoid tissue that, that we still not necessarily know too much about scientifically? There's so much spatially in the lungs that we need to be able to still kind of like delineate and to better understand kind of like the mechanism of kind of like this regulation and inflammation kind of like balance that we're looking at. So we're moving a little bit away from research for this question. So in terms of your PhD and your research, it seems like you got a lot out of it, but it seems like you not only were focused on research, but you were also focused on honing your skills in terms of your understanding of possibly business and teaching. So we know that during your PhD, you were able to receive a mini MBA and as well as a teaching and learning certificate. And we wanted to know what motivated you to get those certificates and what kind of opportunities having those certificates have opened up for you. So actually, one of my motivations for doing these different certificates was ultimately networking and getting to know and meet more people that I otherwise wouldn't have had the chance to meet. So sometimes graduate school is a bit isolating, especially if your lab isn't in a shared space like uh, you guys have in the immunology center. So although I loved my group that I did my PhD with, our lab was very was located in a random corner of the master's hospital and everyone that I basically worked with day in and day out were just mainly people in my group. Um, so I tried to be involved in very various McMaster community type things. And one of the ways to get involved in that was to opt in to do these uh, different certificates offered to graduate students. And also I knew that getting a PhD would make me competent in doing the experiments and kind of like doing the research type questions and answering um, various specific science questions within the field that you're that you're focused on. But what other skills can we develop basically during graduate school? I think as a researcher, um, we have we have skills in leadership, research and teaching. So like I said, we have research down um, as a, a scientist. Um, so it's kind of like being able to kind of like get more experience in these other types of um, skill building that, that we can get. So, but leadership and teaching skills need to be still honed and practiced like what we do with research. So although the mini MBA wasn't necessarily a leadership building course per se, some of the lectures actually focus on strategy and people management. And it taught me a lot about different personalities people have in the workplace and how to actually work with different personalities in an effective manner. Um, as well as skills in kind of like multitasking or being able to like do various things um, effectively and efficiently. And one of the other things too that was taught in these in some of these lectures was mitigating and resolving conflicts. So additionally, as a researcher, we need to be able to talk about our science or sell our science too. And what, one of the things that were taught in the mini MBA course were different pre presentation styles and different ways to communicate to different audiences. And I think that was that was really important. So I would also say I learned that being able to kind of like know and, and, and understand who I'm talking to and who I'm communicating science to is really important. So it's important to know who you're talking to because depending on the group of people you're talking to um, about your science, you'll use different language or jargon to explain your points. So how I practice this is actually 
I, I use my friends in different fields um, to practice the way I present my science to them. So for my friend in the lab, I would use all the technical jargon because we're familiar with it. To my friends in science, but not in my field, I would use more general science terms. And for my friends that are outside of science, I would use more analogies and layperson terms. So kind of just like being able to like practice that when you're communicating your science. On the other hand, so for the teaching certificate that was offered through McMaster's McPherson Institute, I wanted to take this to be a better educator. So by learning how to teach in different ways to different learners, you can kind of gain different skill sets in this aspect as well. So when I was taking some undergrad courses, I had some professors that I learned so much from and were so engaging. And I wanted to learn how to be more like a pet than some of my other professors that I didn't find as interesting. And honestly, I would highly suggest that graduate students at least take one of the teaching courses offered through the certificate. So you don't actually need to take the certificate um, fully. You can take um, a course here and there because you'll learn so many different tools in your teaching toolbox that you can actually implement as a teaching assistant or teaching some lab techniques to like a new lab mate or even for teaching or presenting your research at research conferences. So one of the people I, I learned teaching strategies from who encouraged me to develop my teaching skills was actually Dr. Kirsten Culver, who was my teaching professor in the School of Nursing at McMaster um, and was my teaching assistant supervisor for when I was a TA and head TA for her two courses, pharmacology and microbiology for nursing students. And an interesting fact, Kirsten actually completed her PhD in the medical sciences program at Mac. Um, so she went from doing primarily research and transitioned into a teaching professor role. I always love how other people got to their career paths because I feel like as a graduate student, we are continually growing our skills in research, teaching and leadership. And as we kind of like learn more about ourselves and what we like to do and what we're actually good at doing, the path could hopefully become more clear depending on how much experience and kind of exposure you get um, to like different aspects of the, the job market that's available. So keep an eye out for different opportunities to continually build um, your transferable skills, especially those who are in jobs, out, who are, are interested in jobs outside of academia. Thank you for sharing that. For the last question, what I had here was that, you know, I was I wanted to know more about how you were involved in your clinical research. I, I seen that you've got a couple of publications during your undergraduate and PhD that didn't have to do with allergies, just from looking at your CV. So I was wondering if you can expand on that experience a little more, just to wrap up your experience being at McMaster before we move into your postdoc. Okay, so I'm kind of exposing myself as kind of like not being as focused as I should be, because I, I always try and do things outside of my general role or position, main position at least. So. I've always been involved in some kind of healthcare related work since I was 16. So it was actually around then that I actually started to volunteer at hospital um, because I thought medicine was a potential career path. So I actually used to play music for patients in a continuing care um, ward for their music therapy. And when I went into university, I wanted to be more involved in clinical or medical type research as I started to explore more research as kind of like my potential career path. So since second year of undergrad, I actually volunteered and had different paid positions in clinical research at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, McMaster Children's Hospital, and St. Joseph's Health Centre in Hamilton. So at SickKids, I actually originally started off as a research volunteer who helped facilitate different clinical research being done in the emergency department. So here we would actually fill out different surveys with patients, request research samples like blood from nurses and doctors, or we actually liaise with um, specific research teams to help recruit kids for their studies. 
Um, and I did this for about a year and then transitioned into kind of like more of a management role where I managed research volunteers as the chief of volunteers. Um, and in this role, I got some management teaching and leadership experience because I was actually able to help with the application review and interview of new volunteer candidates in this program. And then I helped with general running of the research program as well. I was also tasked specifically with different research projects too. So I directly helped with patient data collection and analysis and drafted a couple of manuscripts at SickKids too. At St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton, I worked on some head, neck, and throat research databases and managed a group of two clinical volunteer, uh, two clinical research assistants. So in this role, I developed a database to retrospectively and prospectively collect patient data. And as the project grew larger, um, we actually needed to hire a couple more research assistants. That's where I had to manage two more um, people and kind of like teach them what I developed and kind of like how to do the patient data collection as well. So this was only a part-time job though while I was completing my PhD. And then when I was in grad school too, I did some research at McMaster Children's Hospital. Here I specifically worked with the pediatric urology department and I basically used my experience that I gained from sick kids and kind of like developing a program, a research program uh, with the help of one of my mentors, Mandy Ricard, who's a pediatric urology nurse practitioner. And together we created and established an undergraduate research program in her department since she was interested in getting some help with some of the research that they were doing in the department and also to give undergraduate students an opportunity to kind of experience clinical research firsthand. And Mandy also gave me some other research opportunities, which included gathering and analyzing data for publication on various topics of pediatric urology research questions. So from from these research experiences at the various hospital, I was actually able to get so much clinical research experience, which included retrospective chart reviews, patient-facing research, collecting informed consent from patients and family members, and patient data collection from clinical trials. But lastly, I think one of my biggest exposures to clinical research was in my actual PhD, because I mainly worked with human patients or their clinical samples. So for me to be able to do this, actually had to drop, draft up my own informed consent form and apply for research ethics for approval to conduct my studies. And this was only possible through the help of my supervisor, Dr. Gail Garbro, who has so much experience and was a great resource when I was actually generating these documents for the REB application. And another benefit from working on clinical trials was that I had to actually get really good at creating standard operating protocols or SOPs for all of the experiments that I had to do, because even though they were testing different patient samples, we needed to make sure that we were handling every patient sample the same way. No deviations from the protocols and any deviation had to be documented and clearly laid out. So I also got trained to actually collect my own study participants' vitals and demographics information. I was able to actually take a blood collecting course. So I did my own venipuncture and collected my own blood for my patients too. And I think in, most interestingly, one of my projects was actually sponsored by Genentech. So I was um, working closely with them to complete the study that we did on the IgE B cells um, that I was talking about earlier. And we published this study in the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine, or the Blue Journal, as people call it. So I know that was a lot of information on different aspects and types of clinical research. But again, back to the point of collecting tools for the toolbox, whether it be for leadership, teaching or research, there's always a lot to learn. And what's more important is that we can apply what we learn in different scenarios that we find ourselves in. And I think that's the most important thing, too, is as we do the various things we do, we kind of we can kind of like learn what works for us and what doesn't work. 
And by continuing to do what works for us and continuing to do what's important to us, that kind of like one, not makes us, it makes us a lot more happy to do what we do. And two, hopefully if you like what you do, you're also good at it. Thank you for sharing your amazing and diverse experience during your PhD at McMaster. So I kind of to reflect on that whole experience, what were kind of some of the hardships that you face, if you could share that with us during your PhD? And is there any advice that you have trainees that are interested in pursuing a PhD or are currently pursuing a PhD? So I think I'll answer this question about hardships with three specific different examples. One, I've had many, many failed experiments like I'm sure many graduate students experience on a daily basis. I think that's part of the science. We fail, learn from our mistakes, and we just need to keep trying to get better and better until we, we kind of get that eureka moment or we lead ourselves sometimes by dumb luck to a path that finally answers the research question that we have at hand. One example for this is that I kept avoiding look at, looking at sputum samples in my studies for B-cells just because I read the literature, I knew sputum samples didn't really yield a lot of B-cells, so phenotyping them in there might have been a waste of time. But once I finally worked with a clinical coordinator to kind of like help me get participants who yielded good quality and plentiful sputum, I was actually able to develop a protocol to study my B-cells in the lungs of our allergic asthmatics. And this yielded more interesting findings of my PhD work too. So definitely keep persevering and keep going and Failing is okay because as long as you're learning from it, then there's something hopefully to gain out of it. So with this specifically too, it took me three years to finally work out this protocol. And I'm finally glad that I did because I wasn't seeing any interesting B-cell changes in the blood of my allergic asthmatics or in the bone marrow. But basically, don't be afraid of taking a chance because if you succeed to have another tool in your toolbox... If you fail, so sorry, if you succeed, you'll have another tool in your toolbox. And if you fail, you just gain that experience and lesson and kind of like how to succeed hopefully in the future. Two, I've dealt with various personal struggles too during the PhD. So for example, just like my own mental health during my PhD was one of the things that I was making sure that I was keeping in tune with. So one, one basically was dealing with actually coming out. I came out in 2011, and during my, the first year of my graduate studies, I was simultaneously trying to navigate my identity as being part of the LGBTQ plus community. But now I'm saying this in the podcast because I can say that I'm proud to be part of the LGBTQ plus community, and I want to make myself as visible as possible to show everyone that we do belong in academia. So if anyone wants to reach out to me, please feel free. But yes, during that time, I was having this internal banter, or, and I had very poor mental health at the time that I was going through that. And grad school definitely did not help with that because grad students were always stressed and anxious about our experiments. And we just have so many different tasks that we're always juggling, like being a TA, all of our different experiments, presentations, reports, and exams. And I personally experience imposter syndrome too every now and then, and it makes me question whether I actually belong in academia. So I encourage all graduate students to check in with your mental health and try to schedule in some breaks um, and do something fun every now and then. I personally like talking to a therapist every two weeks or once a month just to make sure that I am having that sort of check in with myself to make sure that things are, are okay. So for new graduate students, please always check in Grad school can be stressful and sometimes, or most times, um, but it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to also ask for help. And three, 
life happens and sometimes that can be out of our control. So c'est la vie or what was said usually in my PhD, especially about looking at data that we generate, it is what it is. So for example, during my PhD, I actually had to take a short leave of absence um, due to some family health issues. And I was supported by my supervisor to do this. So as much as I loved my PhD research project, I actually really loved my PhD supervisor even more. Gail always made herself available when I needed her with life and or research type questions. She was also very understanding that I had a life outside of lab work. So what I really enjoyed about working with Gail was that she also believed that as long as the work gets done, I was basically able to do it when I wanted or where I wanted. So sometimes just based on my schedule, I had to do experiments either really early in the morning or really late at night or on the weekends, like I'm sure most grad students do. But I was able to take time off from work when and work from home when I didn't actually need to be physically in the lab. So also, I worked really well with Gail, too, because we knew how to communicate with each other as well. And we knew how to critically think and bounce ideas um, with each other, too. So I always felt like I was one of her colleagues as well that she's working with. And that gave me a lot of independence in driving my PhD, too. And she was also available for support when I needed her. I know this working style may not work necessarily for everybody, but I advise prospective graduate students considering a master's or PhD to make sure that they can have a good working relationship with your, their supervisor. So just kind of like to finish this question off, I really, really enjoyed my PhD experience. And not only the research I did, I did get a few publications during my PhD, but more importantly, I met my partner during grad school. I met some of my best friends um, when I was in grad school, and I met the most awesome mentors during grad school as well. But most importantly, since I love to travel, like I mentioned before, I took advantage of presenting at conferences to travel around the world. So during my PhD, I traveled to various states in the USA and almost all of the provinces in Canada. And I was even fortunate enough to travel to Vienna, Austria and Helsinki, Finland. And all of this travel was because I was presenting my PhD research. So not only is going to conferences good in disseminating your research, but I also actually had three preliminary postdoc interviews too when I went uh, to these conferences. So for example, in Vienna 2016, that's where I had a couple of preliminary postdoc interviews. So I don't think in-person conferences will be happening for a while just because of the pandemic, but I do still highly encourage graduate students to participate even in virtual conferences because there's still a good way to showcase to present your research and most importantly, network with other researchers to get to meet people. Thank you, JP, for sharing that. I, I think you said a lot of things very well, especially those three key things that I think are very important for students to keep in mind. And I just want to thank you for, for being honest and sharing that with us. I really appreciate it. No, for sure. Because like a lot of academia is we always strive to present what's significant, present what's great. And oftentimes we don't see what's not significant. And I think specifically within this context, it's not just looking at all of the good things um, that happens in grad school. It's kind of just like understanding that Yes, we're grad students, but we're also people too. And we should just have a great time and just enjoy our experience. And if you can identify things that is making the, the experience not so great, then that needs to also be addressed. Yeah, I think that's really important to look on and think about. And also in terms of to remind yourself that even if you feel like you don't belong or if you don't see yourself in those places or spaces, that you're there for a reason and you actually do belong. So. I think that's like, yeah, so thanks for that. Like, I relate to that, so. Yeah, and, and honestly too, Don, like you mentioning this whole sense of belonging, I'm 
hopefully when I start my lab in the future, um, my main motto is to give anyone opportunities in research and anyone opportunities in science, because there is still a lot of underrepresentation within within STEM and we just need to be um, visible. Um, we need to find mentors that we can relate to. And there's a, a lot of work right now um, being done on that. And hopefully I can inspire some people to one, either be more involved or to make sure that there is representation within their departments and within their programs on a student level and on a faculty level. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We just want to thank you once again for staying until the end of the episode. We just wanted to remind you that this is only part one. We'll be releasing part two of JP's interview next week, where we get to sit down and talk with him about his current position in Stanford, where he's doing his postdoc. And we get to once again dive into the research, as you saw in today's episode. We just wanted to remind you that if you haven't already to follow us at Immunology and Beyond on Twitter, as well as on Instagram to stay up to date with news related to the podcast. We also wanted to encourage you to consider following the McMaster Immunology Research Center Twitter account as you can be kept up to date with all the research that's coming out of the center where myself, Anna and Dom work at. And for you to follow that, just look up on Twitter at Mac Immunology. See you next week. And this was your weekly dose of immunology.